I remember her crying and and giving me that the look of what do I got to do to help you and uh, I knew that it was eating her up but I was so numb by the obsessive thought of using that's all I cared about was using and I would put it off like I like I was invincible the drug almost makes you think that nothing bad's going to happen to you when you're staring at it right now your eyes your grandmother's falling apart your mom's falling apart all your loved ones don't even want to talk to you you're constantly avoided and and you don't even care you have nothing you're just nothing that's what i felt as if there was nothing in me that was good anymore my grandmother used to pull me out of hell at home when i was a kid but she couldn't pull me out of that one and I knew she wanted to. I seen it in her eyes. It's, it was almost like hopeless. And I, and I couldn't even feel it. I just watched it. It was like I was just there. I was, I was just watching my, my life crumble and not even care. It had no value to me. The only thing I had value was the drug. And what I had to do to get more of it. Hi, this is Dr. Chuck Betters, and we are so glad you are here. We're so glad you're listening to this. Mark Inc. Ministries exist for the purpose of offering help and hope to hurting people. And we have had the privilege of distributing tens of thousands of resources to people who are in uh, trouble, people who are hurting, people who are experiencing difficulty or pain. And today we're going to deal with the issue of, of heroin addiction And I know you're going to be blessed by what takes place here. We're very privileged to have with us Joe and Anne, two wonderful people that I've had the opportunity to meet. Uh, Sharon and I have uh, spent some time talking to the two of you about the problem of heroin addiction. And uh, Sharon, why don't you tell us a little bit about the problem that we're facing with heroin addiction? Uh, Well, I want to thank Ann and Joey for being here today. Uh, We're very grateful, and we're grateful for this story of redemption that we're going to hear um, out of heroin addiction, a grandmother and a grandson. And so I think our listeners are going to be very moved by your story. Every time I've mentioned that we at Mark Inc. are producing a resource on heroin addiction, the response is overwhelmingly, thank you. And then they tell us stories about their own town that there's an epidemic of heroin addiction. Or they'll tell us a story of losing uh, a family member to heroin, either from an overdose or from suicide. And they say, please hurry up and get this story out there because we're desperate for help and hope. As I researched a little bit about uh, statistics, which probably most people already know, the numbers are overwhelming as to the age of addicts. They're starting younger and younger. Teens are more and more inclined to use heroin. A a typical heroin addict spends $150 to $200 a day, according to the stats, to support their habit, which when you start thinking about that, you realize this is like a domino effect. You know, where are they going to get the money for this and all the ramifications of that? The number of people who are going to ERs because of 
heroin addiction. One of the stats I thought was really startling, which I think fits our interview today, is they said that 80% of heroin addicts will shoot up with heroin with a partner, but 80% of those who die of an overdose are alone. And so this addiction is not one that is going to cultivate lasting relationships and friendships. It's a very self-addictive addiction. And it's our hope that this story is going to encourage someone somewhere that there is hope. And I remember, Anne, you said to me, heroin does not have to mean death. And that is the message that we hope will come to you, the listener, as you hear this story. I think it's very exciting that who we have here today is a grandson and a grandmother. That's quite a combination, especially given the fact that your grandmother had such a role in helping you to get through some of the more difficult times of your life. When did your drug addiction start? How old were you when it started? I was about uh, 13, and um, I just started smoking pot with friends, wanting to fit in. Now, how old are you now? I am 31. And how long have you been addicted to heroin? I started with Percocets when I was like um, 19. It gave me a euphoric feeling. It made me feel as if all the pressures of life were gone and I could escape. And I felt like I was better at everything. Like I could work harder. I could be a better boyfriend. I could be a better grandson. I thought I was, and I, and I had kept that together for a while. But um, when the pills weren't there, I moved into the heroin. How old were you? when you started using heroin? I think I was 24 years old. I started using heroin, and it wasn't very long after that that I had got a heroin charge. I got arrested in Wilmington for having heroin on me. We hear a lot today about peer pressure. We hear a lot today about the influences of friends and neighbors, people that you want to fit in with. What role did peer pressure play in uh, your journey in addiction? I can't say that I was ever the victim. I can't take that role because I was more of a a leader when it came to the drug use. I was the one that kind of introduced it to everyone else and tried to control my relationships with it. I, I would almost buy my friends with the drugs and then control them with the drugs. It's a, a costly habit. One of the things that I always wonder about is where do you get the money? My first job, I was 18, I got a job for Coon Construction, which I was making probably $18 an hour at a very young age because my dad was a carpenter, and I followed along with my dad. I want you to go back to the first time you used heroin. Can you remember that time, the very first time that you used heroin? The very first time I used heroin. I believe I, I snorted it, and um, it made me sick, and I didn't like it. So I would take pills. I preferred the pills. Then the heroin, until I shot the heroin, then the heroin was unbelievably different. Can you remember how you felt the first time that the heroin hit was a good one? It was unlike anything I've ever felt before. It was a warm, comfortable feeling. It was almost like I could let go. It's like I wasn't even here. It was unlike any other drug that I had used before. It, all my, everything seemed to go away, and I was numb. When you used it, did you think, okay, I did that, but I'm not going to get addicted. I'm just going to, every once in a while, it's a great feeling, I'll do it every once in a while. Or did you immediately say, I've got to have this. I've got to have it as often as I can get it. 
as soon as I, I felt that, I wanted that feeling all the time. I, I longed for that's all. I, it took over my mind to where that's all I could think about is feeling like that at all times. I think that's that's important for the, our listeners to know because, especially for families who have a family member who is addicted, and they why won't they give it up? You know why? Why? What is it about this drug that is more important? to my son or my daughter or my husband or my wife than me and our family. And what is it about this drug that the user is willing to destroy everything else in his or her life in order to have it? The uh, medical community seems to lean toward the fact that heroin is immediately addictive, that the first time you take it, you're already addicted. And it's like you just said here a minute ago, you had a feeling and you wanted that feeling again. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. How deep did your problem go? What do you remember to be the low point? Once I had gotten that feeling from heroin, I didn't care about my loved ones. I didn't care about myself. I had no morals. It's all I cared about is getting more. I didn't care how I had to get it. I would do whatever it took to get it. It didn't matter who it was. I would crawl on all fours and take my family's purses and get money from them to feed that feeling that I had to have. And as you were finding yourself more and more addicted to this, did you have any kind of an awakening at any point where you said, I've got to stop this, I've got to stop this? And, and then if you did, what steps did you take? Well, I had several in prison wondering how I was going to stop, but I still had my mind wrapped around, as soon as I get out, I'm getting more of this. How did your family react? I mean, your grandmother is here. What part did she play in your life during that period? Uh, I remember her crying and, and giving me that, the look of, what do I got to do to help you? And uh, I knew that it was eating her up, but I was so numb by the obsessive thought of using. That's all I cared about was using. And I would put it off like, like I was invincible. The drug almost makes you think that nothing bad's going to happen to you. When you're staring at it right now, your eyes, your grandmother's falling apart, your mom's falling apart, all your loved ones don't even want to talk to you, you're uh, constantly avoided, and, and you don't even care. You have n nothing. You're just nothing. That's what it, I felt as if there was nothing in me that was good anymore. The high would just numbed all the shame and guilt that would just pile up and pile up and pile up. Because deep down, I really wanted to stop. I just didn't think it was possible. Because I, I, I loved that feeling so much that it, there was times that when I had shot up and I had been fine with going at that moment. I remember being in the bed and and I would like wheeze sometimes when I, when I would get too high where I would stop breathing. And my girlfriend Linda would have to shake me to get me to keep breathing, but I didn't even care at that moment. If I was to go at that moment, I was perfectly fine with it. It was like heaven to me. I don't know how to explain it, but it was like that I was in this euphoria where I wasn't in my body no more. I was just here. And how long do I have to keep feeding this thing? Because every time that the high would wear off, I would think about the next one and the next one. I would think two months down the line, I would like prepare my mind for the next high because I couldn't enjoy the one that I had because it was constantly, what do I got to do to get the next one? Who do I got to hurt? And I didn't even care. My grandmother used to pull me out of hell at home when I was a kid. 
but she couldn't pull me out of that one. And I knew she wanted to. I seen it in her eyes. It's it was almost like hopeless. And I and I couldn't even feel it. I just watched it. It was like I was just there. I was I was just watching my my life crumble and not even care. It had no value to me. The only thing I had value was the drug. And what I had to do to get more of it. And I didn't know how to love anymore. You said that the the heroin made you feel like you, you could do anything. You were invincible, and yet everything around you was falling apart. You were losing everything. Not in the beginning. In the beginning, it, it felt like I could use this to my advantage. Like I could, I could have this feeling. I could keep everybody happy, but continue to do it. And it doesn't continue to be like that. It only lasts for a short amount of time to where it turns totally sinister on you to where you are not in control of it no more. It's in control of you. So anyone listening who is in that same cycle, what you would say to them is the drug is a liar. I wish I had an answer for the way to, to break that cycle, but I don't, I don't have an answer for that. And it took a, me to get to a breaking point to where I had to do something different. Because when you, when you do sober up from the, this high, like for me, it was in prison. But for when, when you do sit still, when something takes you out of the element, because I'm a, the kind of drug addict that I'm going to go until something makes me stop. I'm not going to make me stop. She's not going to make me stop. And for me, it, was, it had to be, I end up in jail. Something takes me out of the element because I'm not going to do it. Do you think that that's probably true of most drug addicts? Once they are as addicted as you were describing, that something has to happen to take them, they're, they're not going to think clearly enough that, okay, I'm going to go to a, a drug rehab now, I'm going to make that decision, or do you think it's something dramatic has to happen in their lives for it to be a real rehabilitation? I can only speak for myself. For me, it had had to be something had to take me out of the element because I had no idea how to get out of what I was in. Something had to intervene to get me to where I was sat still. And I had to get real with myself and see things for what they are because the drug kind of blinds you to what's going on. But when, when the blind folds off and you're sobering up and you're sick, I had to lay on like all fours and punch my kneecaps because my legs would keep kicking. Because when you withdraw from heroin, it's it feels like it's never going to end, and it's like torment. Like you can't get comfortable, you can't eat, you can't control your vowels. Your whole body is is doesn't know what is going on. It's like it wants that drug. You physically want it. And this happened when you were in prison. For me, it's happened several times in prison to where I would, you know, I'd come have that moment of clarity, I guess you could say, where it would clear up. And I would get sick, and I would say, oh, I'm never doing that again. And then I'd get right back out, and I'd forget everything that I just went through. It sounds like you were in prison several times. What were you in prison for? Yes. When I was young, when I first started using heroin, I got a possession charge for heroin. And I sat in jail for a little bit, and uh, I came out, and I went to rehab. But I, I didn't want to face myself. Every time I've gotten clean, I really wanted to keep, get everybody happy. Now it's time for me to go back and do what I want to do. It's been like that for a long time to where it's getting old. 
for me, it's it's it, I've been through the cycle so many times to where I'm saying to myself, when are you just gonna wake up? It's not fun anymore. You're not 24. You're not, you know, a party animal. This isn't cool anymore. When you first realized you were addicted, how long did it take for you to enter rehab? When I started using heroin, it was quite apparent that I needed a rehab. It was almost like every time I went to prison, I went to rehab. But it's not, that's not necessarily true either, because I went to detox. There was the Ellendale detox. I went there probably about 12 times. I've been to Kirkwood detox like 30 times. I would go for six months, and then it would get out of hand, and then I would go to— de- I always wanted to keep my job, because I thought that took the focus off of what was going on with me. But I was only fooling myself, so— now, I'm hearing you say that you've been to detox numerous times. You've been to rehab numerous times. As you sit here in front of me today, where are you with your addiction problem today? To me, uh, addiction is a, a compulsion. It's a, where you get a thought in your head and you can't let it go until you satisfy it. Addiction's not just uh, to a drug. It's to anything that you think about and you obsess about to where you can't control yourself. I do have them thoughts occasionally, but I automatically know that I can't obsess about anything. Even I would discipline myself even to sit in the bedroom and I'd want to get up and I'd go do something, but I would sit there for sometimes hours just to see how long I could control myself because I didn't know how to control myself at all. You were clean for, I think you told me, about a year recently. And then a few months ago, you relapsed. Yeah, I was clean for 14 months, and um, I had relapsed. And um, I've been clean for since January. Is relapsing just part of the recovery process? I mean, do most heroin addicts relapse? I've relapsed many times, but um, the periods of using are, get smaller smaller and smaller to where I, I kind of hit rock bottom a lot quicker. But I, I do know that it gets easier and easier and easier to stay clean. The first couple times I, I had gotten clean, I wasn't, I wasn't even able to think straight. My mind would race. Do you think that's the impact of the drugs on your brain? I think that the shame and guilt, and um, every time that I've gotten clean before I was on probation. I had major stipulations. I didn't have a driver's license. I would drive illegally. I didn't have resources to where I was stable. I think that now that I'm clean this time, I have a car. I have my own townhouse. I have my family loves me. All my relationships that have been scarred. And at 15 months that I was clean and I relapsed, I had did my probation. I did task. I did everything that was required of me. I did slip, but I didn't lose my driver's license. I have everything I need to succeed. Every other time I got clean, I didn't have a driver's license. I had all this stuff that would constantly go through my head. You don't have a driver's license. You don't have a chance. I mean, that was my thinking. I never have what I have today. I, I don't think I've ever had that in my life. I've never had my own place. I haven't been clean very long, but I am building off of what I had before. And you're sitting here as Joey's grandmother. And it's interesting to me, all the time he was talking, he was speaking somewhat matter of fact until he started talking about you. And when he started talking about you, he filled up and he had to hold back the tears. So I'm going to ask you, what was it like for you as a grandmother to see him caught up in addiction? 
Having someone that you love as much as I love Joey caught up in addiction is probably the closest thing to a living hell that I've ever experienced. I've lost four sons, two biological, two stepsons that I raised from the time they were six and eight years old. I lost a two-and-a-half-month-old grandson, my husband of 50 years. And all of those were painful, very painful. But there's more than one way to lose a person. I lost Joey. I lost the Joey that I knew, that I adored. I still loved him and adored him, but he wasn't the same person that he was before. When you love somebody and you have to hide their purse when they come into your house, that's painful. When you see someone who has the potential that Joey has, he was athletic. He was pitching a ball, what, 90 miles an hour when he was 18 years old. His potential in sports, he was bright in school. He has leadership qualities. When you see that person who you love using drugs and destroying their lives, destroying their relationships, it's pretty painful. And Joey, for all his numbness from the drugs that he was taking and everything, he could see the pain and he knew the pain that he was inflicting and he couldn't stop. And so he was probably in just as much pain or more pain than I was as a result of it. And what was the greatest fear you had as a grandmother? On a day-to-day basis, when Joey was living in my home, I had a, a fear and dread that I would open the bathroom door and find him with a needle in his arm on the floor, dead. What was the hardest thing for you as you watched him? The hardest thing for me was not being able to reach him. In fact, I don't know if he remembers, but he said to me one day, I bet you wish there was something you could say to make me stop. And that was so true. I wish there was something I could say or something I could do that would make him stop. One of the guys in the support group that I lead at Attack Addiction said one time about his son, and it's so true with with all of us who deal with loved ones in addiction. He said, when I gave my son money, he used. And when I didn't give my son money, he used. And when I let him live in my house, he used. And when I kicked him out of my house, he used. That feeling of impotence that no matter what you do doesn't seem to make a difference. It's a horrible feeling. It's like watching somebody you love drown and not being able to get to them and rescue them. How did you cope with the ups and downs of Joey's addiction? My faith has always been my, my strongest friend. You know, it's the only thing that kept me going. I could use all kinds of excuses. You know, family and friends are important and everything. But basically, it was um, my faith that kept me going through the hard times and still does. This ministry of developing resources for hurting people is, is called Mark Inc. Ministries. And of course, it was started when we lost our 16-year-old son, Mark, in a car accident. I like to refer to that as redeeming the pain. And in your particular case, you have actively been engaged in some organizations to help people who are facing addiction, family members, etc. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Set Free? Set Free is a program that we started in November of last year at Rebuilders Church because Pastor Morgan is a counselor at Salvation Army and sees the difference that Christ can make in the life of addicts. And because of my own personal experience, not just with Joey, but with other family members who have found freedom from addiction through Christ. 
I, I wanted to make that available to other people. And so I had prayed, and, and the Lord gave me, I believe, a very clear direction um, about the messages we should bring, about the power of love, the power of forgiveness, the power of our identity. And so we started holding meetings. And the 19th of November, we still have them every Friday night. We have people coming who are in recovery or still actively struggling with addiction. We also have family members who come. And the interaction between the family members and loved ones of uh, people who are addicted and the people in recovery has a very healing effect. We use the recovery Bible and... um, we study things about anger or relapse or rejection. We have a topic for each meeting, and people share very openly. It's a place where they can feel safe and confident. You seem to indicate that there is constantly a fear that he's going to relapse. How do you deal with that? And more specifically, when he recently relapsed, what did that do to you, and how did you, how did you handle that? I was devastated. I'll be perfectly honest. I saw Joey for 14 months, so strong. He got his driver's license back. He got a car. He started working at a job where he was making a lot of money. Everything seemed to be going so well. He was working long hours and had a long commute, and he started sleeping a lot. And then, you know, I began to see evidence that, that there was a problem. I prayed a lot, and... I have to say it, the Lord took me in the Bible to the book of Daniel, um, to the story of Nebuchadnezzar, and showed me that um, Joey, because of all the accomplishments when he came out of rehab, was dealing with the issue of pride as Nebuchadnezzar did. And the Lord just showed me that he was in a season of insanity. And I remember crying out, how long, God? And he said, until he humbles himself and looks back to me. And that kept me going, you know, um, because as bad as it seemed, I knew that it was for a season. And in the story of Nebuchadnezzar, it's the same as with Joey. Uh, He came back stronger than he was before. And I believed that for Joey. And that's what I held on to at the times when one night I knocked on the bathroom door and he didn't answer. And I went back into my bed and fell back to sleep for a while. And I went back to the bathroom door again and knocked again. And that's the time I was most afraid I was going to open that door and find him on the floor dead. But he opened the door and said, what's up? And walks out. But the, but the feelings were still there, the fear and the dread. So I held on to that, what I felt was um, a promise from God that this was a season that would pass and that he would come back stronger. That's what helped me to get through it. Joey and Anne, Both of you, as I'm sitting here, it's like holding back two racehorses who are at the starting gate and they're waiting for that that bell to ring so that they can run the race. I know that there is a deep spiritual commitment in both of you, a deep relationship in Christ in both of you that played a, a significant part in your recovery. Why don't you take us back to when that first happened, Joey? Why don't you tell us exactly what happened spiritually in your heart that got you on the path to recovery? Two years ago, uh, I was really heavy into my addiction and to where I was, um, I would hear like doors slam. Uh, I'd wake up and there'd be butter knives underneath the bed. Weird, weird stuff. Um, and, uh, and one night I, I got the bright idea to go, um, go up in my brother-in-law's apartment and um, take his assault rifles and trade them for drugs. 
So I got the bright idea. I was going to do that. And I, I went up. I broke into his apartment, which was upstairs at my grandmother's. I took his guns and I made a phone call and I traded them for drugs. The, the next day, the drugs were all gone. There was a knock on the door and it was a police officer. And I told him I wasn't there, but they wanted to talk to me. So uh, my automatic thought in my head, I got to I gotta hide. I mean, I'm gonna hide, and this is gonna go away. So I went to Delaware City, and um, the presence of the cops were everywhere around Delaware City. <sighs> I called my grandmother. I was I was high at the time, and I called my grandmother to come get me. I told her the cops were everywhere looking for me. So I got on a bike, and I was riding out of Delaware City, and I had uh, rode it into the marsh because the cops were everywhere, and I see my grandmother run by, I mean, ride by, and I ran out, and I banged on her car. I got in the car. I was, my heart was racing. I was crying. I didn't know what was going on. I knew that something serious was about to happen, and I couldn't stop it. I got the bright idea I was going to go to Maryland and stay at my dad's house in Maryland, and uh I was hoping this would all go away. So I told her, let's stop at Wendy's. I wanted to get a Frosty. And um, we stopped at Wendy's, and five or six police cars got behind us. And they told me to, to get out and get out of the car. I hear I was in, I think, ripped shorts with mud all over me. I didn't even have two shoes on. I only had, like, one shoe. And, and I had a needle in my pocket, so I... I I got out of the car and I threw the needle to the side and uh, the police officer slammed me and they drug me across the blacktop. My grandmother's screaming in the background. It's like, don't hurt him, don't hurt him. So they took me to the police station and um, the cop came in and he said, uh, he said, now you want to tell me where the guns are? And I, there was something I had to drink or it was like a beverage and I threw it against the wall and he said, um, he said, well, we're charging you with uh, burglary second, and then I'm going to charge you with the guns. And I, I was like, whatever. They posted my bail at um, $15,000 cash. They took me to the prison. The cop told me, he said, that I ain't ever, you ain't ever getting out of jail. And it kind of, it hit, it finally, like, hit me in the ch chest that um, this was more than just a drug issue. This was, um, was the behaviors that came with using the drug. It had me do stuff that I didn't think that would even catch up on me. And um, they sent me to the infirmary because I was, you know, my pants were ripped and I was clearly out of it. I was in the infirmary, and then in the infirmary in uh, Gander Hill or Howard R. Young, there's, um, there's like pipes and pole joists going across the ceiling. And I looked at my bed sheet, and I, I figured uh, I can't do this anymore. Um, I didn't, didn't see a way out, and uh, I just wanted it all to end, and I didn't know how it was going to come together, and I knew I could not do anything. I couldn't do anything to uh, change my situation at that time. So I didn't hang myself, thank thank God. Uh, they eventually moved me upstairs. But, I mean, in my head, there was you know, just still that thought that, you know, you're going to be in jail for the rest of your life. You let your family down. The drugs were more important than anything else. And it's all this shame and guilt, and it's overwhelming me to where I can't even, I can't sleep. I couldn't eat. And, I, and it was even after I was 
you know, the sickness was gone. I went into the shower one night and I, and I just sat in there and I, and I remember songs that I heard in um, Salvation Army. And, um, and as the water was running on my head, I began, began to sing these songs and cry out to God in desperation. Because I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't, I couldn't change anything. I, I knew that I was to a point where my life was so out of control that I didn't know how to fix it. But I, I knew deep down that there was a God, and I knew that, because I remember growing up going to church and seeing how my grandmother was and how she was the rock, and it was like peace came upon me, and I couldn't stop crying, but it wasn't necessarily like tears of pain or anything. It was like overwhelming hope that it was going to be all right. As the water was running down my face, I just, everything that I had been bottling in was just coming out of me so heavily it was overwhelming to where I left that shower and I knew that God was real and that he loved me and I knew that whatever I was going through or whatever I was facing I had God with me and I knew he loved me and I was going to be fine even if I was spending the rest of the, my life in jail I had accepted that I had messed my life up and I could not do anything about it without the Lord in my life. And I knew his presence is real. I knew his insurance that came with that presence, that I wasn't alone. I knew at that moment that I was not alone, and I knew what I felt was real. And I know, I knew deep, deep down that there was not a drug or anything that made me feel the way I felt. Because everything I had bottled up was washed away in that shower. I had went for a bail reduction, and... um. They postponed it, and uh, but I had been calling my grandmother. I said, if we can post a bail, I'm going to go to Salvation Army, and I'm going to get clean, and I'm going to try my best not to let this happen to me again. So they kept postponing the um, the bail reductions. And then eventually they gave me up. I went down, and um, I, I had uh, got a bail reduction. They had dropped it from 15,000 cast to, I think, 5,000 secured. My grandmother had posted it, and um, I went to Salvation Army. It was strange because when I went to Salvation Army, I wanted a female um, counselor because I, I've always been kind of able to manipulate women in my, my family and women in general because I could manipulate them. And I asked for a female counselor, and I got a male counselor. And uh, my male counselor was a pastor. The first time I, I had met him, I had went in his office, and he didn't really seem very interested in what I had to say. He wanted to pray. So I gave him my hands, and I, I prayed. And here comes that feeling back that I felt in the shower. And, um, and I was being cleansed again because I, obviously I had so much built up inside that I didn't even know how to put it in words. But something about praying was was relieving me from this tension that had me my mind racing. Um, I don't know if it was the drugs or it was just how I was wired. It seemed like when we would, we would pray, the, you know, time would stop moving, gravity wouldn't exist, and I was actually comfortable and complete, just like I was in that shower. I felt as if everything that was going wrong was everything was right. 
I began to tell him about, you know, stuff that I went through. But it, it nothing I said or compared to the, the feeling that we got when we prayed that seemed like it made me feel better and energized every time I left his office. But I, I, I longed for that feeling and um, almost like the drug. And um, it was almost a, that insurance that, you know, God was with me because I, I knew when I would leave his office that God was real because I, I had sensed his presence and I felt it and uh, I didn't want to use drugs. I didn't even want to think about drugs. I didn't even want to think about anything negative. In fact, I didn't even want to leave the office. I, I, I enjoyed being in the presence of God or or. I can't describe it, but that the Holy Spirit, or I can't put it in words, but I know that it's real. I proceeded to go through Salvation Army, and, and I eventually graduated, and I went to an Oxford house. But I noticed when I was in this Oxford house, I was scared to leave the Oxford house. I had no idea what it was like to be sober and be in the real world at all. The only security I really felt was when I was at church or when I was with my grandmother. And I kept thinking that, you know, the Lord was going to put something in my life that was going to be not too big on me, it would be like a stepping stone to to get me where I needed to be. And I sat in that Oxford house for three or four months. I would barely leave. I would pray a lot, and I would read my Bible a lot, but I didn't feel comfortable being alone or um, being on the outside that much. I, I had never experienced this amount of clean time in my entire life. I, I didn't understand the feelings that I felt. I, I kind of got impatient with God, and I thought that He was going to you know, lay everything out for me without me even leaving that Oxford house. I thought that He would put a job in my hands, and He would you know, develop everything I needed. Joey, you needed to pay your bills. What what did you do about a job? So I eventually got aggravated, and I I had went. I heard about somebody that I knew used, and I knew that he drank. But he had offered my girlfriend a job at um, an iron worker outfit that was hiring, and I would make good money. So I hopped on it. But I didn't realize that the the place that I had to go work was in Salisbury, which was a three-hour commute back and forth, and they were working 10-hour days. So I would began to do that, and every day that I uh, would go there, I would take guys with me. They wouldn't drink at first, but after a couple of weeks when they got close to me, and they would start to want to drink on the ride home, and I would think that, you know what, I'm strong enough. I can be around drinking. I thought that, you know, I was... You know, as deep in my faith, I could uh, I could be around these people and not not want to drink. And it, it worked for a little bit. And then then I got the bright idea that if I ate while they drank and I was full, I wouldn't want to drink. That worked for a little bit. I wasn't going to church. I wasn't talking about my feelings. I wasn't. I didn't have no kind of structure. For me, the devil moves me away from everything that keeps me where I need to be. I slowly moved away from that. And then I eventually got to thinking that, you know, this is how slick the devil is. He would tell me that, you know, your grandmother just wants you to be a Bible thumper and all this stuff. He would turn me against the ones that I was closest to. Joey, scripture says that bad company corrupts good morals. You felt strong that you could withstand temptation, but what happened with these guys? Eventually, um, one day we had worked 10 hours and I was soaking wet in sweat and I was miserable because that's all I did was sleep and work. I didn't have any kind of relationship with anybody but these three guys in my car. And um, eventually they they talked me into drinking and I drank. But I noticed as soon as I drank, 
I felt all alone, right back to where I was before I got in that shower. I was all alone, again. And I and I saw it coming, and I just, I thought that I I had it, like, like I was cured. Joey, what are some of the life lessons you learned from this relapse? That's one thing I've learned about addiction, you ain't ever cured. The moment you think that you don't need God, something bad's about ready to happen. And um, it, and it seems like a lot of times when you do get clean, it's, I did this. I have this much time. I, 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 I. And uh, you keep pumping yourself up to where you don't see what's about ready to come. Because there would never be a moment when I got it. And I don't need my grandmother. I don't need my pastor. I don't need godly people in my life. I, I'll never reach that point. And I, I've accepted that I'm... I don't have it. I don't I don't have it. And I probably will never have it. But I know the source that does. I, I know that God is real. And I know that if I keep him close and I keep pe- godly people around me, that I'm going to be fine. Because I like the scripture in Thessalonians where it says that, Brothers and sisters favored by God, the gospel came to us not simply with words, but power and deep conviction. For your sake you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And I noticed that when I was in that car, I was starting to imitate them guys that I was around. And not not even knowing it, that what you surround yourself around, you're going to imitate it and not even mean it. I try to imitate the Lord, too, because I, I, I'm fascinated how you can go through, you know, a life and not sin. And you've mentioned that this was such a heartbreaking time for you when you saw, you knew that Joey was slipping away. And just from what he's described, an observer would say it's going to happen because he removed all of the protection that was around him. You told us, you shared with us your lowest point. You were on your way to a meeting, uh, one of the set-free meetings. What happened in the car on the way to the meeting as you were despairing over where Joey was? Uh, Joey had come home from work and was gone in the bathroom, and I asked him if he was going to come to set free uh, meeting, and he said no. And I just had a strong sense that he was going to shoot up as soon as I got out of the house. But I was on my way to the meeting, and I was driving up Red Lion Road, and I just felt, I, I just heard this voice saying to me, what are you doing going, facilitating a meeting to help drug addicts. You can't even help your own grandson. You know, you're wasting your time. Who do you think you are? All these thoughts kept assailing me. And and I just started crying. I was crying so hard that I couldn't drive. I pulled over on the side of the road. And I had decided that I wasn't going to go to the meeting. I was going to go home and confront Joey. And just before I was ready to turn the car around, I, I just cried out to God. I said, you know, God, please help me. Show me what you want me to do. And I felt like the Lord spoke and said, you go do what I told you to do, and I'll take care of Joey. And so I've learned the hard way that I need to respond to God when he shows me to do something. And so I blew my nose and wiped my eyes, and I drove on to the meeting, which happened to be one of our better meetings that night. When I got home later that night, around midnight, um, Joey came in, and he was really messed up, worse than I'd seen him in a long time. And he had some sort of a dispute going on with his girlfriend. And 
you know, the thought came to me, God, is this how you're taking care of Joey? You know, I mean, it was worse than I'd seen him since he started the relapse. To make a long story short, he settled down and went to bed. And the next day, the next morning, he said, I'm going back to detox and back to rehab and I'm getting my life back. So, you know, within hours after that prayer, um, he was back on track. What happened to change your direction? It it was strange because I I thought that my pastor or my grandmother would intervene to to wake me up because I was living in my fantasy and I was the king, you know, that's what I felt. But I knew things were about ready to crumble out of control. And I had been to that point before. But I knew that it was possible to get clean because I had done it before. And I was sitting on the bed with my girlfriend, Linda. Um, she would sit by the window and wait for me to come home from work. I mean, I could tell that she loved and adored me. And I felt like, what am I doing? And, I, and, I, and it just it clicked to me that I was killing this girl. I have a 10-year-old son, and it's killing him. It's killing my grandmother, and because um, I, I had been clean, and, and people relied on me. Here I was letting them down, and I, but I knew that I don't have to let them down no more. I've done this before. That's that's something I never really been able to say in the other times getting clean, because I never really found freedom being clean. But I knew it was there, and I knew it was possible. So um, she she had told me that, and um, I took the money that I, I had money in my sock that I planned on getting high with. And I took the money out of my sock and I gave it to her. That's never happened to me in recovery. I use, Usually it's when I go to jail, I wake up, it's something major, dramatic. But that night I knew that she loved me and I knew that I was hurting her and I knew that I need to stop. So I had given her the money and um, I had went and I had got myself back together. I went into the chapel and I cried and I made my peace with God and I made my peace with my grandmother and things didn't spiral out of the control the way they had done before but I had been sick when I went to Salvation Army because I went to detox and then I came out and I used and but I knew that I was going to Salvation Army on a Monday and I came out on Saturday but I wanted to use I wanted to go out with a bang so I had used and um and I went to Salvation Army, and I had never been so sick in my entire life from all my addiction. I was sick for seven days. I was throwing up. I literally felt like I was dying. I had never been sick like that. But I knew that the sickness was going to be over, and then it was going to be time to face the music. So I endured that. The presence of God when I was praying was unlike it was ever before. I could literally go in the room and pray, and the next thing you know, I'm walking around clapping and crying. I, I, I didn't even know what I was doing, but it, I knew it was happening again. And I think I was in there about a month, and uh, I asked three people. The Lord said, I asked three people, and I asked my grandmother, and she said, you sound good. All right, let's go. And, so, and then I asked Steve, and he said, you look good. You've had it before. Go put it in play. Because in the beginnings of recovery, you have like a fire, and um, sometimes you'll sit still so long. I was in Salvation Army for nine months, and I had a fire at six months when I was. Seems like beginning recovery, you're you're on fire, and you kind of got to act on it. But I, as soon as I got this fire, I was acting on it this time because I I knew that I needed to get stuff to establish for when that nine months comes, because I didn't really prepare for it at the time before I went to an Oxford house, but I didn't have a job, I didn't have any plan. So um, I stayed there for about a month, and I asked three people, and they all, and I asked Pastor Morgan. He didn't really give me an answer, but I knew he wasn't going to, you know, say no, because I knew he wanted me back. So I had uh, left the program, and 
something told me to go to a Celebrate Recovery meeting. And so I grabbed three guys from the Salvation Army that graduated when I had gotten clean last time, and we had went. And this guy came up to me and said, are you looking for a job? And I said, matter of fact, I am. And it was for connections. And I knew it wasn't no money, but I knew it was what God wanted at the time. So I took the card, and I called him, and I got a job the next day. Now I'm a supervisor for connections. I have a townhouse. My bills are paid. I have a driver's license. I mean, everything that I didn't have when I was making a lot of money, it just doesn't make sense. It seems like everything I, I need is is there. I, I, I don't need for anything. I don't have a lot, but um, I have just enough. And you're in a place where the people around you are going to encourage you to stay the course, it sounds like, which was different than when you were making a lot of money on a different kind of a job. So that sounds like a really important piece. Joey, you have referenced your relationship to your pastor. And I, as a pastor, appreciate when I know that what I am doing with people is making a difference in their lives. The most frustrating thing about being a pastor is is when you know they're not listening to you and you know what trouble they're going to have to endure. We happen to have your pastor here with us, and I would like to ask him, Pastor Morgan, if you would tell us you, you've been listening to this interview with Joey. What is your read on him, where he is? Uh, what is what is your perspective? What, what have you seen that we need to know? I think that listening to him and understanding all that he has shared, one thing that comes to my mind clearly is that living sober is possible. It is possible because no matter how you look at it from a clinical point of view, from a spiritual point of view. If an individual comes to where he recognizes that he has a problem and seeks solution and and surround himself with the right people and do the right things, he or she is able to maintain his or her sobriety. Listening to Joey, he has a strong foundation that is in Christ. He has developed and built a strong support system with his family, with a church community, with friends also who are in recovery. He has a determination in his heart to do what is right. He's driven, he's passionate. He's beginning to find what it means to live and, and to enjoy life. He's understanding the principles of contentment, understanding that life is not just about all material things and feelings and emotions, but about loving people and loving himself and loving those who God has placed in his life and in his circle of influence. So my take on him is, is, is that if he stays focused on these foundations that he's establishing, if he builds on them, if he continue to stay humble, if you continue to uh, realize that addiction is very insidious and um, it's not just going to go away because you have 10, 15 years of sobriety, um, if you keep on doing the right things you need to do, then you're going to stay sober. So I, I believe strongly that with Christ in his life, with the right set of tools that he has at the moment with the right company that he's keeping, he will be okay. Now, that does not mean he's not going to have challenges. He would have challenges. The problem with getting addicted to any kind of substance 
is also the effect that it has on the brain and on the mind. So he will have moments just like any other person in recovery will have. But suddenly, if he keeps focused that these are no more issues that come about by reason of prolonged and, and long use and abuse of substances, and that with the help of God and prayers and, and, and speaking his mind uh, when he is confronted with emotions that he does not understand or can handle, being willing to open up, to say, this is where I am, this is what I'm feeling, this is what I'm thinking, and being open to receive uh, advices and suggestions given to him above all things, taking it to God in prayers, you know, and growing in the word of God, he's going to be okay. What advice, uh, Pastor, would you give to someone who's listening to this right now who is contemplating or is in the throes of addiction? What advice would you give them? Don't give up hope. Don't throw in the towel. Uh, don't feel as if there is no way out. There is a way out. Um, even if you have hit rock bottom over and again, there is hope. Um, and, and that hope is found in the person of Christ. Uh, that hope is found in coming to realize that Jesus came to destroy the works of darkness. Addiction is not only a bio, social, physiological malady, it is also a spiritual malady. And being so, Jesus came to set man free. And there is hope. If you can open up your heart and, and believe that God exists and that Christ can set you free. So that would be my advice. Don't give up hope because there is solution and that solution is in the person of Jesus Christ. Relapses are very much a part of the recovery process and also very disappointing and challenging and hurtful to family members who watch someone sober for so long and then to relapse so in particular, what advice would you have for family members, uh, friends who are who are watching somebody relapse? Is it over? Is it hopeless at that point? W what advice would you give? I'll begin by saying that relapse in itself is an indicator that an individual has begun a journey and slips out of that journey. Uh, often we consider relapse as a very negative experience. In my work and profession and training, I've come to believe that relapse sometimes could be considered a part of the journey. When and if yeah, it occurs, for family members, uh, what I'm going to say to you is to think about it like a child who is learning to walk. He's bound to stumble, and to fall. And when that child falls, I think that every good mother will go to his aid or her aid and give them that support. And the greatest support you could give to a family member who has relapsed is an unconditional love, not condemnation, not, yes, you've done it again, I expected it. You must show them love. You need to, you know, open up your arms and tell them, yeah, you may have fallen, but you will rise again. You know, give them that unconditional love. Just give them love. Give them hope. Assure them that you will stand with them, by them, as they begin to walk again. That is how I see relapse. It is like a baby who falls, but who needs the support and the encouragement and the love of a loving mother, loving father, for him to know I can stand and I can run again. 
Our Father and our God, how grateful we are for the stories of redemption that demonstrate to a unbelieving world that the power of the gospel does indeed change hearts and change lives from the inside out. How grateful we are that you have given your life on that cross, that you were buried in that tomb, but more importantly, that you broke forth in victory out of the grave and that you live today to intercede for your people who have trusted in you as Savior and Lord. I pray for that one person, that one individual, that one man or woman who is listening to this resource now that is contemplating or involved in heroin addiction, that you would minister to them through the power of this resource, that your Holy Spirit, through Joey's story, through Anne's story, that you would be able to penetrate their heart with that wonderful message of hope that we find in Jesus Christ. So Father, may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts, may it be pleasing in your sight. May this resource be used for your glory in ways none of us thought possible. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. This moving and informative interview was produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. To contact Mark Inc. Ministries for more information on other resources, call us toll free at 877-MARK-INC. That's 877-627-5462. Visit us online at markinc.org to see what other free resources are available for Mark Inc. Ministries. Our message today comes from the Learning to See When the Lights Go Out series and is designed to offer help and hope to those who have been struck by the pain from a variety of sources. If you or someone you know or love is struggling, you are likely to find a Mark Inc. Ministries resource on that topic to offer a bit of hope to that pain. That website again is markinc.org. You can also contact Chuck and Sharon Betters in care of Mark Inc. Ministries at 2880 Summit Bridge Road, Bear, Delaware, 19701. Mark Inc. Ministries, making abundant riches known in the name of Christ.